last three weeks we have been going to school with the giants of prayer, Moses, David, Jeremiah, Edie McQuestin. <laughs> but today we come to uh, the prayer giant par excellence, and that is Jesus. In John's gospel, he, he's different from the other gospel writers in that he devotes nearly a quarter of his gospel to the Last Supper. The others spend less than a chapter describing that Last Supper, that upper room conversations and prayers, but John spends five whole chapters describing the conversations Jesus had with his disciples. And then he concludes that time with the longest prayer that we have of Jesus. Jesus prayed a lot, but in the Gospels, we only see little snippets here and there, teachings on prayer, comments about Jesus going off by himself to pray. But here we have an entire chapter, John chapter 17, if you want to turn there with me, the longest written prayer that we have, the recorded prayer that we have of Jesus. And as far as I'm concerned, it is the greatest prayer that we have recorded in the Bible. Jesus started that Last Supper with his disciples, according to John's Gospel, with a foot washing. Spent a fair bit of time talking about the Holy Spirit, and then he prays. And this prayer is sandwiched between two um, completely different kind of, of situations. Just before Jesus begins to pray, he is talking to his disciples, giving them a prediction of the fact that they would abandon him in the hours to come. He talks about dying on a cross and the fact that they would have trouble in this world. A sober way to, to launch into this glorious prayer. And then at the end of this prayer, they leave the upper room and they head for the Garden of, Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus will continue to pray and his disciples will fall asleep and then those will, that are coming to arrest him will come. It's, it's sandwiched between these two sober uh, events, the predictions of unfaithfulness, the trouble in the world, and Jesus being arrested. But in between those two sober events, there is this glorious prayer. In this prayer, there is a word that just kept leaping off the page at me as I read it this past week. That word is glory. This is a prayer that has much to do with the topic of glory. Beginning with the first verse. Father, the hour has come, Jesus prays. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those who have given, you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Jesus begins by saying that the hour has come, and the hour that he is speaking about is, of course, the hour of his crucifixion. Within 24 hours, Jesus is going to be nailed to a cross, and his life is going to end. 
So in this prayer, when Jesus says, glorify your son, that your son may glorify you, he's talking about a paradoxical glory, isn't he? He's talking about a glory. He's inviting God to, to, to take him to the cross. He's, he's embracing the cross that awaits him. Jesus is going to be glorified by dying on that cross. And the Father is going to be glorified through the results of that crucifixion, the eternal life, the ability that we have to know God. The cross was, of course, the Roman Empire's ultimate penalty. It was a penalty full of shame. It was the symbol of shame in the Roman Empire. But for Jesus, it was a symbol of glory. The paradox about Jesus, that, uh, about which Jesus was praying that evening, also applies to us, doesn't it? It, it applies to us in that we can glorify God by embracing our cross. The way of the cross is antithetical to all of the priorities and the values of our world, right? Our, our world says, win, win at all costs. Grab the gusto, don't let anybody get there first, ahead of you. But Jesus embraces a different set of priorities which begin by dying on a cross. Embracing the cross of Jesus is the key to unlocking the transformational glory of, of God in and through us. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16, whoever wants to be my disciple must de deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. As Paul says in the Galatian church, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Paradoxical glory the glory of the cross. I wonder if we could pause for just a moment. You might want to close your eyes to eliminate the distractions, but would you pray about what it means to you to be crucified with Christ? Next comes the glory described in verse 4. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do, Jesus prays. This is accomplished glory, the glory of completing a task. The cross is Jesus' glory, as Jesus' glory refers to the purpose or the goal of his life. Why did Jesus come? He came to atone for sin and to establish his kingdom. That was the purpose of his coming. Jesus glorified his heavenly father by obeying God, 
obeying him all the way to the cross. The resurrection that happened three days later would not have happened if the crucifixion hadn't happened first, right? From John chapter 4, at the well in Samaria, Jesus said to his disciples, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. In the garden that night, Jesus would pray, not my will, but your will be done. This is accomplished glory, persevering through the hard things to do the work that God had given him and to do the work that God gives us. We also bring glory to God by finishing the work he has assigned to us. Can we pause for a moment? And can you listen to the Lord? Ask, ask the Lord, what is my work? What is the goal of my life? And listen to what God says to you this morning. In chapter 17, verses 5 through 8. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now that they know that everything you have given me comes from you, for I gave them the words you gave me and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you and they believed that you sent me. The glory that Jesus is talking about in verse 5 I'll call pre-incarnate glory. The glory that Jesus had before he became a human being, a baby in a manger in Bethlehem. Jesus had the essential glory of God before the world began. The glory that Jesus set aside in order to become incarnate. The glory of his uniquely close relationship with his heavenly father. I love how St. Augustine describes the, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the embodiment of the love that exists between the father and the son. <laughs> That love is so intense, so pure, so beautiful that it springs into life as the Holy Spirit. The pre-incarnate glory that Jesus had. As Paul says in Philippians, though Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. As Moses writes in Genesis chapter 1, then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. 
God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living, living creature that moves on the ground. As John says, as he begins his gospel, through Jesus all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. God has always been glorious. The creation of the universe, and particularly the human race, was the canvas on which God's eternal glory is painted. The glorious image of God has been stamped onto our lives. Do you believe that? The glorious image of God has been stamped onto your life. Let's pause and think about that. Ask the Lord, Lord, where do I see your image in my life? Beginning with chapter 17, verse 10. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine. The glory and glory has come to me through them, speaking of the disciples. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that scripture would be fulfilled. I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word and the world has hated them for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. This is the reflected glory that he's speaking of in verse 10. Jesus is glorified through the ministry of the disciples. A teacher's glory is reflected in her student. A coach's glory is reflected in his protege's victories. Jesus' glory is reflected in our lives. If we share in Jesus' suffering, we will also share in his resurrection and his glory. We are the glory of the Lord in the sense that we reflect and embody God's glory. As Luke writes in chapter 4 of Acts, when the Sanhedrin saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. <laughs> What's the difference between those stumbling, bumbling disciples before the resurrection 
and their lives is recorded in the book of Acts. It's the fact that they had been with Jesus. They had been reflecting now the glory of Jesus. And no matter how unprepared or ill-equipped we may feel, we have the capacity to reflect the glory of God too. I know you have days when you don't feel like you're reflecting the glory of God very well, right? But we have the capacity by the Holy Spirit to reflect the glory of God. The sanctifying power and purity of God makes it possible for us to look like God in the world. Would you pause for a moment and ask the Lord, what parts of your life need to be consecrated and sanctified by his power and his purity? Next, beginning at verse 20. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. The glory that Jesus is talking about in verse 22, I would call unifying glory. The unity and the glory of the Father and the Son now includes the disciples and now includes us. The bond of love between the members of the Trinity is the bond intended for us. The union that Jesus is praying about here is the goal of the spiritual formation process. Spiritual formation begins, the classic word is purgation, getting rid of our sin, being forgiven for our sin. The next step in spiritual formation is illumination, the light of God shining in our lives and transforming us. But the goal of that is union. The goal of that is unity with one another and with God. And that is made possible by Jesus and his death on the cross and resurrection and the sending of his Holy Spirit. The distinguishing characteristic of the church is the glory of Christ-like love that makes us one. As Jesus told his disciples earlier in the same evening, from John chapter 13 and chapter 15, Jesus says, By this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And what does that love look like? He says, greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. Pause for a moment. And pray for a brother or sister that is 
hard to love. Finally, beginning at verse 24, Jesus prays, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. The eternal glory is what Jesus is talking about in verse 24. You stop to think about the entire arc of Jesus' glory from that which he had before the creation to that which was demonstrated by his faithful obedience to his heavenly father that took him to the cross, to that which he now has sitting at the right hand of his father in God's eternal kingdom. This is an all-encompassing glory of God seen in the unity between the father and the son and the Holy Spirit and we, the redeemed people of God. As Jesus would later summarize the love and glory of God in one of his letters, he writes, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. So we are enveloped in this all-encompassing glory, this all-encompassing presence of God, the love of God, the life of God. We are in, enveloped by this, as Paul uh, proclaims in Acts chapter 17, in God we live and move and have our being. But yet, check out the space between you and the people sitting around you. Just kind of look around here for a moment. There's a lot of space between us, right? But it's not empty space. It's God's space. Would we take a moment, another moment, pause to pray? how would you express to God your sense of his presence in your life? Thank him for the way he shows up in your life.
Jesus prays, and in the course of doing that, teaches us how to pray, how to name his glory and our glory. There's paradoxical glory, accomplished glory, pre-incarnate glory, reflected glory, unifying glory, eternal glory, all of which Jesus experienced and modeled for us and then passed on to us through the Holy Spirit. As the glory of Jesus is being lavished on us by the Holy Spirit, one of the things that happens is that we are given eyes of faith. Eyes of faith which allow us to begin to see the true glory of God. We have eyes of flesh. Those are the eyes with which we were born. But Jesus gives us eyes of faith. Eyes of flesh see the cross as a symbol of shame. But eyes of faith see it as the symbol of Jesus' glorious triumph over death and sin. Eyes of faith see Jesus only as the carpenter from Nazareth. Eyes of, eyes of flesh see Jesus only as the carpenter from Nazareth. Eyes of faith recognize him as the glorious incarnation of God. Eyes of flesh see death to self as the pointless loss of power. Eyes of faith see it as the beginning to the glories of eternal life. Eyes of flesh see servanthood, servanthood as demeaning humiliation. Eyes of faith see it as the glorious work of God. Eyes of flesh see unity as a loss of self-sovereignty. Eyes of faith see it as the ultimate goal of God for our lives and our relationships. And as Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate God's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Would you write down that reference? Because you need to spend some time with us. We need to spend some time with us. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, where Paul says, And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, and a good place to find that is chapter 17 of John's gospel, as we contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed. Is that not a good word? <laughs> Do you need to be transformed? I say, do we need to be transformed? Yes. We are being transformed into his, into God's image and his ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the, who is the Spirit. <laughs> you know, from the paradox of dying on the cross with Jesus to the final union that we have with God and one another, Jesus is praying for us to experience the same glory that he experienced. Do you want a piece of that? We are going to share communion together, which is a perfect picture of something that was thought to be shameful and yet in reality was glorious. As we share in communion here this morning this bit of bread and this cup of juice 
we are reminded of the suffering and the shame that Jesus experienced, the scandal of the cross. But more importantly, we're sharing in his glory, aren't we? Take a moment to peel those layers off. And let's bow our heads to pray. Lord Jesus, we're reminded in this extraordinary prayer in John 17 of just how upside down your principles and your kingdom is. but your principles and your kingdom is what we seek first, Lord. We are sick and tired of living according to the principles of this world, the dog-eat-dog, grasping principles of this life, this world. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, for teaching us something different, teaching us what it means to know God and to have his eternal quality of life within us, motivating us, changing, transforming, renewing our minds and our hearts. Lord, we don't want the glory of winning a fight, winning an argument, overpowering somebody else so that we can attain the goals that we are after. Lord, instead, we want your glory. As we hold this cup and this bit of bread in our hands, Lord, we confess that we are not worthy. And we ask for your forgiveness. We ask for your grace and mercy in our thoughts, in our actions, in our words. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, sitting at that table in an upper room with his disciples, he told them what glory really means. He prayed for them that they might be glorified as he was about to be glorified. And he passed them a loaf of bread And as they broke off pieces, he invited them to see them not as just bread, but as his broken body, his willingness to be glorified on the cross. Let's break and take and eat this bread and share in the sufferings of Christ. took a cup and he said this isn't just wine this isn't a symbol of Old Testament sacrifices this is my blood the blood of a new covenant 
a new covenant of glory and eternal life. Our sins washed away and forgotten by God, separated from us as far as the east is from the west. A covenant that includes purity and holiness that we might live the image of Christ, the image of God in our ordinary everyday lives. As we take this cup and we share it together, give God glory for setting you free and stamping his image on you. Let's drink together. And then let's let Jesus pray over us. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that you may be one as, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Lord Jesus, thank you for praying for us 2,000 years ago. And thank you for teaching us how to pray and to name the glory that is ours through you. In your name we pray and all of God's children say, Amen. Amen.